Yes, folks, it's Thursday, 2 p.m. I'm Fred McMurray, which means this has to be... Hey, I guess we get to do the announcement that it's Thursday, it's four o'clock central, and that means this is the next episode of Where's the Franchising? Fred, we just stole that from you. Did you feel how that happened? <laughs> nope. He says nope. I think that means he forgot. I don't know. Either way, it's Friday Eve, my favorite day of the week next to Friday itself. Anything differently, right? So we have an amazing show today with a couple of great women, powerhouses in franchising that I cannot wait to talk to. And I think all of you will be extremely interested in hearing their stories. So before further ado, Elizabeth, what's our word on the street? Well, our word on the street is that you are going to be out of town next week. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we do a lot of work with the Titus Center for Franchising at Palm Beach Atlantic University, and you have been invited to come host a roundtable at their boot camp, their franchise selling boot camp. Um, so we want to hear all about that. Um, but before yeah. we do, I want to remind everyone, because I don't want to forget to do this, if you want to call in, we have great guests. We've got Lisa Mary of Jet King. We've got Andrea Mundy, who is back with us um, and has a lot to contribute about our show today. Um, so if you have questions during the show, please call us at 323-580-5755 or go to pillarsofstrangehousing.com and reach out to us on the chat. But now I want to hear all about what you are going to be hosting your roundtable about and what the other topics are um, when you're down in West Palm Beach. Well, I'll tell you. So, um, first of all, there right now are like over 180 people attending this franchise boot camp. Um, it is put on at the Atlantic, uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University by the Titus Center. Um, we've got a couple of great uh, keynote speakers. Uh, Dan Monaghan, I hope, Dan, I'm not slaughtering that, but he's the founder of Clear Summit Group. Um, he's going to be talking to us about barriers of growth in the franchise systems, principles and lead generation, and a couple other things. We have Michael Mudd. He's a partner of Brand One Franchise Development. Uh, he's going to be talking about the uniquely, uh, how to uniquely communicate the brand opportunities that you have for your candidates who are looking to um, invest in franchises. And then um, presenting tools and systems to help improve franchise sales overall. And of course, we have Kayla Ryan, who you and I met uh, this past month when we were down at uh, the uh, meeting down there. And she's got all kinds of great stuff. She is a second generation uh, franchise uh, guru, we'll call her, um, talking about why people don't want to fill out lead forms, how you can use, um, I'll say, AI or in general, just um, new tools that a lot of us don't think to use to help people get your message out, first of all, and then to help people find you and help people proceed and process down the um, franchising path, so to speak. I really slaughtered that, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So um, this, this, the content's going to be great. There's ways for people who are listening today that are out there 
Um, you can still register online. It has 300 certified, or I'm sorry, um, certified franchise executive credits associated with it. It's supposed to be 80, 85. That's the most important thing. Uh, so getting out of Chicago for some nice warm weather is certainly um, going to be beautiful uh, for me. And there's a ton of other things. I mean, really, this is going to be um, a great event. There's going to be a lot of people there, not only people who are looking to help others get into the franchising space, buying a franchise, but also uh, franchisors are going. They'll send the development people. There's going to be um, some franchisors there to talk and meet with the uh, people who are the consultants, the people who are selling franchises and all kinds of different stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great time. And again, that's next week. Classes are on 19th and 20th. Um, my round table is going to talk about how big of a sandbox do you want to play in. And that basically is talking about exactly what we're discussing here on the show today. How do you go from a brand or how do you know if you want to choose a brand that is a founder brand? Is it a brand that sits within a small private equity? Or do you want to go with a monster like Neighborly who has, you know, I can't remember what the count is today. Every day I have to look and see. Junk King came on, which is who we're going to talk to next. And I said, oh, my gosh, we didn't even know we had Junk King. All of a sudden, Junk King became a Neighborly brand. So mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the pros, the cons, um, the transition, and things like that in my roundtable on the 20th, I believe. So that'll be a, good, a great conversation. And I think it's, it's nice for people to be aware of those different options, because the other thing is things are changing quickly. And you right. may go in with a brand that's, that's individual, and then they're, they're in talks, and your world changes dramatically. So I think being prepared that those are possibilities, knowing what sure. you're looking at long term, you know, it's, it's a great way to be more educated about what you're getting yourself into when you decide to go into franchising. Yeah, and more, more common than not, mm -hmm. um, when you're acquired with private equity down the road, there are a lot of great attributes to it. Um, but not everybody is built for change, right? A lot yeah. of people get out of the corporate world because they're like, things are changing. I don't like change. I don't want to be a change manager, blah, blah, blah. And so we go and we buy our own businesses, our own brands, and we think that's the way it's going to stay. But in franchising, it evolves. And so you have to be ready for that. Yeah, so. as in life. So yeah. the more you can learn and understand about how all of this works and goes together and how you can navigate the different scenarios, the better prepared you're going to be. For um, sure. And with that, I'm going to remind everybody one more time, give us a call at 323-580-5755 with your questions or comments for our team and our guests. And Kristen, are you ready to take it away? Yeah, I am. I'm so excited. We have our wonderful Andrea Mundy back with us today. We haven't got to see her for a while. So welcome back and happy new year to you, Andrea. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Fred loves <laughs> And I'm super excited to welcome Lisa Mary, who's currently the president of Junk King. Um, she was prior prior to the acquisition, I should say, by Neighborly, as I just mentioned. Um, funny, I just found out about it like in December, and the acquisition here was in November. That's what I'm saying, it's information, right? Sometimes it doesn't travel as quickly as you would want it to. But she is the COO of Junk King, or she was, I'm sorry, before the acquisition. Um, and she was brought on then as it changed from a founder's franchise into the first private act. Um, and I think, uh, Lisa, you said, if I'm not mistaken, like from eight, I'm sorry, six to 28 locations at that point, right? 
six to 28 corporate staff. We had 96 oh, okay. locations. People. Yeah, we had 96 locations when uh, Norwest first came in uh, and acquired us. And in the three and a half years, have built to 172 locations. So very exciting wow. to go from 96 to 172. And that is why a company like Neighborly wanted to. Absolutely. And so now you're responsible for overseeing the day-to-day -day operations and administration functions of the business, uh, focusing on establishing the policies and promoting strong um, company culture, which we talk about a lot here, which is fantastic. And then you're designing and implementing the internal business. As you said, uh, Kristen, you know, people fear change, but we also have to realize that, you know, with opportunity is going to come change and, you right. know, the business um, kind of atmosphere is always changing and we have to be at least agile enough to change with it and yeah. stay, um, you know, moving with our customer. So that's very, sure. very important. Well, I was very excited to see that you also spent some time with our friends over at Huntington Learning Centers. We've had Ann on the show before. So you have been around in the franchising industry for quite some time. Do you want to just tell us briefly about your journey and, and why you are really the right fit for the role you have today? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I graduated from Penn State with a degree in mathematics. So I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. And my father said, absolutely not, because teachers make $1 a day. So you cannot go down that path. Um, and un, you know, unhappy to him, I still became a teacher. But because I only made a dollar a day, I had to have a second job. And that second job was actually at Huntington Learning Center as a tutor in mathematics. That was my first introduction to a franchising concept, because little did I know I was working for a franchise location. Um, after about two years of teaching in the classroom, I really fell in love with Huntington and its methodology and what we were able to accomplish with kids, as I'm sure you've heard Ann talk about many times. Yeah. And so I actually made the switch out of the classroom into the business side of, of education and just became over 16 years with Huntington, um, you know, all knowing and, and all seeing about franchising. And the same way I fell in love with the methodology of the way Huntington educates kids, I really fell in love with franchising. It is an amazing opportunity for someone who has an entrepreneurial spirit, but doesn't yeah. necessarily want to take all the risks themselves. And, you know, in franchising, now that I've been here over 25 years, um, which is a really long time, <laughs> you learn that, you know, these entrepreneurs want to get into business for themselves, but not by themselves. So there right. are still rules and there are still things that you have to follow in a franchise. But as I not only moved on from Huntington to other franchise brands, just working with the breadth of, of franchise owners that I have over the years, it's exciting to see them bring their own personality to each brand because there is right. the opportunity to do that. Um, so I think if you go into that idea of either becoming a franchisee or making the move to become a franchisor and start franchising, you know, your own brand, there's just so much benefit to it um, to be part of a structured system and have that support. I love how you tied what you used to do, what your career was of teaching and how you were able to find a franchise brand that just melded with that. And I think that a lot of people don't realize, you know, so many think of um, franchising and they think of fast food. Right. Like, you know, and I'm so excited because there's so many different models out there. It's like, no matter what your job is today, there's a model out there for you. There's absolutely, absolutely. So, excellent. So, Andrea, would you like to get us queued up? We've got a bazillion yes, questions. I do. Well, I actually wanted to tell you that I was also a teacher early in my career for a very, very brief amount of time. So I think that's interesting that we both have 
that background, but um, what I was curious about, you said two things, one I read in your bio and then one you just said right now, um, that one of your um, accountabilities is to establish policies um, to create a strong company culture. Uh, and, and I'm just curious exactly what that means. And I know that in many companies, they talk about having a culture, but they don't necessarily hold anyone accountable for that. So you seem to have a lot of experience and a reputation for being able to do that. So how have you been able to hold people, whether it be franchisees or people that are actually working for the franchise or accountable for that? I think the, you know, when you think about that phrase and you say policy and culture in the same sentence, they tend in most people's mind to be absolute opposites as right. opposed to something that would go together. Yeah. And when you approach franchising from the understanding that, you know, yes, there's a structure and yes, there's a system, but the people that are out executing that system every single day and living and breathing that system should have ideas and input and you know one of the one of the most amazing examples i heard very early on in my franchising career is that the big mac was not created in a lab in a franchisor um, office but rather it was created by a franchisee in the field mm -hmm. and some of our best ideas in all of the brands i've ever been associated with have come from the franchise owners in the field and what we have to be able to do as a corporate team is to be able to pull all of that input together and, and bring all those great ideas together and figure out how can we systematize that to really support and develop and grow the entire system. And what I've found over my career, uh, Andrea, is that when you listen to the franchise community and take their um, input into consideration when making the policies, then you will have enough of the organization and community that follows and helps you execute yes. that through the rest of the system. Because no matter how big or small your franchise is, there are always going to be top performers, middle of the road, and unfortunately, bottom performers. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe, Andrea, that anybody ever gets into business to intentionally fail. But there are times when a franchise owner is just not the right fit for that mm -hmm. specific franchise. And that's right. okay. We can help them healthfully exit the system and move on to whatever might be next. But in the meantime, our job is to protect the brand so those middle and top performers can continue to benefit from that strong culture and that strong brand that we've been able to create. Well, it's, I think, it's, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was just thinking about that word policy because we see it as such a negative, but in a lot of ways, I've thought about culture as kind of being driven by values, but in a way, what, what you're, you're almost creating, um, you're almost holding the the values as the policies, and I, I really okay. like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. you know, I want to get a little into the brand itself because obviously that's why we had you on here. But I will tell you, along with Andrea, some of the things you've said have really kind of made my mind go in different directions. So I think the other thing that people get caught up in is, and Ray always jokes, you know, he didn't buy Molly Maid to go clean toilets, right? Well, that's not why I bought Molly Maid either. Why we bought the brands we did, and what I hear you describing is that you want to buy a brand, aside from that fits you financially. I always look at that as like, yeah, 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 that's a given, right? But one that fits you culturally, and it feels good morally and ethically, and the values align, 
you just made me think like, who cares what the brand is necessarily? I, I would do Junk King, right? Right. Now, do, what would my girlfriend say when they're like, oh my gosh, Kristen, you're by a junk company, right? Well, think about that, Kristen. I went from educating our youth yeah. to hauling junk. And every right. one of my friends and family were like, what are you what? doing? <laughs> and yeah. not only was it a very exciting, cutting edge, growing brand, which needed yeah. some of that structure that I had, you know, gained knowledge of and skill set with over my years in franchising. But honestly, the way we go about hauling junk, you'll see from anything on our website or any of the other information you read about junking, we are all about sustainability. And quite frankly, right. you know, saving this planet so that the next generations can have a healthy planet yeah. is almost as important as educating our youth. Well, the newest generation coming in to invest in franchising systems, that's what they're all about, right? My daughter is the craziest one. She, you say, what do you want for Christmas? I just want to go to Salvation Army. I just want to go. I'm like, what? Right. She's like, mom, there's no reason to buy new clothes. That is so, that has so much pollution to the earth. I'd rather just go and, and seek out and find used clothes. And I'm like, did she, did she just say that? I mean, but that's the <laughs> that generation. That's out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and not that I'm, I mean, I love going to find a good bargain too, but I just, is, it's so different from even 10 years ago when you ask your kids what you want for Christmas. They're not asking for gift cards to Salvation Army. They're right. looking for gift cards to Macy's. Right. <laughs> and when you, you know, think about that idea of sustainability, um, you know, becoming part of a, a junk company, um, of course, doing my research, learning all about dump trucks, which my nephews thought I was the coolest aunt ever because they think <laughs> I drive dump trucks every day. Mm -hmm. um, but you start to look at that and say, you know, what does it mean to recycle? What does it mean to repurpose and reuse? And I will tell you, yeah. recycling is not easy and it's not cheap. Um, mm -hmm. And most cities, even though they try to recycle, don't do it very well. Um, yeah. and it's not a knock on them. They just ha don't have the manpower or the funding to be able to do it correctly. And when right. we look at the type of things that we pick up on a day-to-day -day basis, if we have the opportunity to repurpose or reuse or donate those items and keep them out of landfills, it's amazing the sum of the partnerships that our franchise owners have been able to create. Think about something as simple as Habitat for Humanity. Most people are aware of that where they build houses for mm -hmm. underprivileged families. Well, imagine the local junk king who's collected couches and desks and tables and dressers and just yes. everything that people are getting rid of. If they donate and partner with one of those types of charities, we've basically furnished 80% of the house at no cost to that specific family. It's just, there's so many amazing stories. I could go on for hours and episodes, yeah. um, but knowing that that's at the core of who we are as Junk King and, and yeah. keeping that sustainability front and, and foremost, it's absolutely another piece, not only our success and our units and our revenue, yeah. but really that attention to the environment is what allowed Neighborly to say, this is, this is a company we really want to make part of our, you know, home yeah. services portfolio. Well, and it fits within the value system we have at Neighborly, right? And so I think, again, that, that cultural fit. Um, so let's talk about people who own a, a junk king. Like, what's my everyday routine? Because I'm super excited. I, like, love the whole idea. I think it's super slick. Even though it's named junk king and people think that you're a garbage hauler. No, not really. You know, if you market it, like you said, mm -hmm. we're giving back to the earth, right? We're recycling. We're upcycling, whatever. Um 
I guess I just totally lost my train of thought. How embarrassing is that, right? Um, so tell me what my typical day in the life of sure. a Junk King owner is. Sure, absolutely. So as an owner, you are going to spend marketing dollars to get people to be aware of the brand in the market. So whether you're mm-hmm. in Atlanta or Florida or here in California where our corporate office is located, um, you know, somebody's going to look up, I need to get rid of a refrigerator. I need to clean out an attic. I need to, um, you know, get a hot tub out of the backyard, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, our franchise owners offer several different types of services, full service, where we show up with a big red truck and take care of all the labor and get rid of everything. And, and that's one way we can drop a 12 yard dumpster, which is what we call driveway friendly. So for those do it yourselfers, and we're just in the process of launching a three yard dumpster bag. So it can actually come shipped nice. to your house. And when you fill it up, you click a QR code and set the appointment and we come and pick it up. What, As a franchise owner, when you spend those marketing dollars, all the calls go through a call center. So you wake up in the morning and you have all these jobs on your schedule and you take your fleet of trucks, whether it's four or 14, and you Mm -hmm. determine based on zip codes and areas who's going where and who's completing what job. As they pack a truck, your teams or your crews out there learn how to pack a truck so that they are coming back to the warehouse and pulling off any of the um, items that we picked up, either to be donated, to be repurposed, or to possibly be recycled. We pull metal off of everything. We pull cardboard out of everything. We try to put at least 60% of every one of our truckloads through that process so that we're taking the absolute minimum to the actual dump or transfer station. Awesome. Then at the end of the day, again, you're, you know, sending your crews off congratulations, well job, you know, good job, well done. Um, And you as the owner are typically making those relationships somewhere in the community to be able to connect to those uh, facilities to donate to. If you think about whether it's homeless shelters or battered women's shelters or, you know, those kind of things, they're always needing beds and tables and dressers. And there's just so much you can do in the local community. And, And as any franchisor will tell you, the more integrated your franchise owners are with the local community, typically the more successful your franchise is. And that's true for any business, not just franchise. Sure. I love it. Andrea? Yeah, I had a question about something that you said early on, just in terms of when that acquisition took place. Um, And you said that there was some management of fear that some of the franchisees you felt might have. And I don't know if this is something you can quantify. I was curious from your experience, whether it be with them or with other companies you've been with, like overall, do you think that there's kind of a general split or ratio of people that see that change as something very exciting and they're, 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 they kind of jump into it. Like they, they just trust that you figured it out. Whatever is going to happen is going to be better than now. Right. And then what percentage it's not that they're necessarily negative, but from my experience in going through something similar, they just take a different amount of time to process that change because right. it is fear-based. So do you think you could quantify that overall in like a ratio of percentages? Of sure. You're a math person. so a math person. Absolutely. <laughs> I can quantify anything. Um, so there's absolutely fear of change from everyone. I I would be remiss if I said that there was someone who had absolutely no concern whatsoever when private equity came in. Because when you have direct access to the founder and to have conversations and to feel like you have input to the actual, you know, founder and owner of a company, and now all of a sudden we go from this cute little tight group of six corporate employees to 28 corporate employees, 
when you step back and look at it, you say, wow, they're bringing on some experts in each one of the fields. Instead of one person trying to do finance and marketing and run the call center, now we have an expert in each. They will, down the road, see the benefit. I think part of our job as the franchisor is to make sure that we are actually over-communicating during that time. Because mm -hmm. what they have to do is not just hear about what goes on, but again, going back to my math background, really quantify what's happened. Yeah. So you take something as simple as how we used our ad fund dollars when we were a founder-run organization to now the programs and the partnerships we have through those same ad fund dollars that added eight more vendors because we now had somebody negotiating great contracts with those vendors. Mm -hmm. And we, we were able to make that dollar go so much further for each one of the franchise owners how now they had a franchise business coach to talk to and each yeah. one had, you know, only 30 franchise owners, whereas before it was one person trying to support all 96. Mm -hmm. um, there, there does come those kind of benefits with a private equity cash infusion. I think when you look at this most latest acquisition with Neighborly, you think about them being the world's largest home services company. This was a very strategic move for Junk King. Uh, when Mike Andriaki and I had, you know, looked at several different companies and opportunities that were there in this next turn, it was something where we were looking that the franchise owners can actually see and feel the benefit to partnering with 17 other home services brands here domestically and 30 other home services brands, you know, internationally. Yep. And you think about that power for them, not just to help the consumer make good choices because ideally all the brands are being held to similar standards and similar values, like you talked about, Christine. Right. Um, but also that it makes it easier for that homeowner. It's not easy to find a, a landscaper or a house cleaner or a junk hauler. Yep. And there's lots of, you know, it's, it's a very scattered market for almost all of the home services types of, of uh, brands that are out there. Yeah. Um, so for us to be able to professionalize it and, and offer it to each of the communities is very exciting. I do think, though, again, like you said, it's kind of like education. Everybody's going to learn at their own pace. Everyone is going to yeah. accept change at their own pace. And for those who can never get to the point of seeing the good in it, then, like we said, that might be the point for them to exit this brand and go into the next, you know, emerging brand, because maybe right. they're a great first adopter. To your point, Kristen, no matter what the brand is, they're just excited to get that next idea yeah. or that next, um, you know, skill moving. Right. The next shiny new toy. Of course. So tell us who, who would be your ideal candidate as a franchisee? So I think you want someone who is, um, you know, has a little bit of business acumen so that they can understand mm -hmm. how to make business decisions. Um, somebody who is willing to be a first adopter or be open to some change, especially mm -hmm. if they've come into a brand that allows them to give constructive feedback. Um, and notice how I put the word constructive in there, because yeah. as all of us in franchising know, there's always some very loud franchise owners that either are just poor performers or just are putting their own agenda. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, if they have the forum to talk to other franchise owners as well as the corporate team, um, I, I think it's, it's something where they have to have that openness to follow a system. But at the same time, you've you got to be a little gritty in franchising right. to really, really just buckle down and get it done. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a little of each of those. But 
I don't want to create a unicorn. You're not looking for somebody who has expertise in everything because it's okay sure. if you don't know marketing. That's why you have yeah. corporate. It's okay That's if right. you don't know how to maintain a jump truck. We're going to teach you how to do that. It's okay if you don't know how to hire employees. We're going to teach you how to do that. So if you have one or two of those characteristics and then you can use the support of the system provided to you, then you're going to be successful in any brand. Excellent. Andrew, do you have another question? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to understand at what point do you think it's the best time to introduce that you've made the decision to take this deal on? Um, because, you know, on the one hand, transparency is really important, but it's also got to be at the right time that you feel like you've got all the ducks in the road to be able to answer all the questions that come with that. Yeah, I will say this neighborly transition was actually a bit of a surprise to our franchise owners, but not a surprise. Okay. As soon as we were acquired in April of 2019, which was founder run to the, uh, to the, the first private equity, that was the one they were most scared about because they didn't know was the founder just going to disappear and now was it going to be all corporate and there was going to be no you know family which is basically what they had mm -hmm. built and i would say any brand the first 20 to 40 franchise owners feel like family because they're yeah. really mm -hmm. building the brand from the ground up you know together yeah. so that was the biggest fear was were we going to lose that sense of family and it took us a good year to prove to them like nope we're still family we're still here yeah. we're still all working together Ever since that first acquisition, every franchise owner knew that a private equity has a five-year plan, and their goal yeah. was going to be to, you know, build this up and infuse the money needed to make the investments to, to grow the business, and we saw great growth over those three and a half years, so much so that we went through this next transition in three and a half instead of five years. Um, so, like I said, they were a little surprised at the speed of it. But they've always asked me in the three and a half years I've been here, so when do you think, you know, the next transition is <laughs> going to happen and who do you think it's going to be? I think their only fear in that, Andrea, was were we going to go to like roll into another concept? Was one of the other junk companies going to buy us to just mm -hmm. get us out of the mix because yeah. we are such a strong, you know, second place to the, to the top producer right now? Um, and when they saw us make that step with Neighborly, where the goal was to be able to partner with all these other home services companies, mm -hmm. Dunking has a bit of a benefit because we have two customers that we're able to help. Not only the homeowner themselves, who neighborly prides themselves on having all of the home services to offer each customer, but we can also support the other companies. We have companies mm -hmm. like Rainbow Restoration, Real Property Management, Five Star Painting. Everybody that goes into the house that do work eventually has junk. And, you know, we can be there to, to be the cleanup and not only offer the franchise owners the best pricing, but know they're getting that same quality and same values and, and all the things we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And That's so do awesome. you see a little bit of cross-pollination with the franchisees wanting to take other brands and become franchisees of some of the, some of the other concepts? in the portfolio of Neighborly? Absolutely, Andrea. Already seeing mm -hmm. the interest. Um, and again, it's only been since November 1st. So we're talking about 10 weeks. So right. we're very, very early in the integration process. But our franchise owners are very excited, not only about their opportunity to possibly become franchise owners and other brands, but even just to have their own community of business owners. It's like we have our own BNI group, you know, right, with, yeah. with all the different brands, and they can talk to other franchise owners who are servicing the homes and seeing the same successes 
and the same struggles. So it, it helps them solve problems at a local level as yeah. well as, you know, share the successes. So mm -hmm. it, it's exciting. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes me think of something that you need to take to neighborly for our next reunion, which is aside from having all these brand specifics, we need to do some regional stuff with all the brands, right? Yes. So you know, Ray and I happen to be in Chicago. I would love to meet my Junk King neighbors. Yeah. Um, and the great thing that you pointed out, and I will be talking with people about next week in um, West Palm Beach, is the beauty of having um, a, a parent company, private equity, whatever you want to call it. Neighborly, I don't even know. I, we just call them kind of the parent company, right? Sure. Um, for them is that you have so many different businesses within there that you can talk to, that you can consider. So I'm looking to piggyback something on top of my Molly made. Mm -hmm. Well, what better place to look than right inside Neighborly? Right. Because it's something I know already. I already believe in the values. I already know how they run their systems. I already know what the strategy and the vision is, right? So I think that's great. And I think we'll probably see within the neighborly umbrella as we continue to grow and acquire other companies, you'll see more and more franchisees own multiple brands under that umbrella of neighborly. I would agree. So, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit, the, the people out there who are looking to buy and they're really interested in all this, um, how do you determine your territories? How much is it costing someone to get into this? What's their, what, what do they have to have in the bank ready to go? Sure, absolutely. So in order to buy a Junk King franchise, it's one of the, I'm going to say, simpler business models because, uh, again, you don't have to build out a store for restaurants like you talked about or any kind of you know, big investment that way. Basically, we sell protected territories. So you buy zip codes in a market. Our average mm -hmm. territory size is 450 to 650,000 people, and we charge 12 cents a head. So the average cost of a territory is about 72 to $75,000. That's the cost mm -hmm. for the territory itself. Your other initial investment will come in buying a truck. Now, you don't buy the truck cash. You buy it like you do a car. So there's a down payment, and then you have a monthly payment over four or five years. So you sure. buy a truck, and then you find a warehouse space in your market because we are brick-and-mortar locations. And that's so we can bring all of those items back and sort and recycle and repurpose and those types of things. But you're looking for light industrial space, 1,500 to 2,500 square feet. So again, rent's not significant unless you happen to be looking in downtown Chicago, but in most of the <laughs> suburb markets, you can find a light industrial area where mm -hmm. your rent won't be uh, very high at all. I, in our FDD, we quote from you know like $900 a month to $3,000 a month is kind of the average there. So liquid, what we require in the FDD is about 150000 you want to see as, as capital. Um, mm -hmm. But other than that, it, it really is about then finding the team to go ahead and start running appointments. And our best franchise owners over the last two years as we've gotten started, you start with one truck, you're out running appointments, and within the first two months, you're already moving on to your second truck. And then your goal is to add at least one truck a year from there. And the growth has been outstanding. I have yet to find a market, Kristen, where we can say, nope, no junk here. I guess we shouldn't sell this market. <laughs> like that does not happen. Anywhere yeah, Amazon delivers to, there is going yeah. to be junk. <laughs> yeah. Or just send them to my house and now this new office, we got lots of it hanging around. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know about Jump King, Neighborly, in general, opportunities that you have out there for them? I do think the biggest um, takeaway is that 
you know, when you're looking for somebody to take care of the house and you look at those values that we go back to, Kristen, the, the thing I've learned early about Neighborly is they do really care about the franchise owners, which is important to mm -hmm. us because they're the, they're the ones out there representing our brands, whether it's the individual 17, 18 brands around the home with Neighborly or the bigger Neighborly brands. And, and I do think that's a newer concept for home services is to say, how can we offer all of those services to a customer? So yep. I just, I'm so excited for the next three to five years and just how much opportunity there is, not just for our, our franchise owners here at Junk King, but also yeah. just the whole neighborly brand as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. As, as a neighborly brand myself, I can't agree more. I really think that um, you know, both of you touched on the fear and, and I can tell you, when I was down at the FBA conference, I had someone from another cleaning company, another clean franchise approach me and say, oh my gosh, we just got acquired. And um, I know you guys were acquired. And he just wanted to talk about like, what is that like? And what should he expect? And was it really as bad as they think that it's going to be? And, and I said, you know, really, it's not. But yes, the fear of the unknown is always the first step. So your point to making sure that the franchisor gets out in front and starts talking to people and giving them straight talk, I think is very important. And, you know, as those change, I mean, it takes time, right? It it, everything evolves. And so um, I think in a lot of ways, like you said, if you're somebody who doesn't want to do change, you know, pick your brand carefully because mm -hmm. the successful grant brands are going to be movers and shakers. They are. Mm -hmm. and, they and are. For the and I'd love to tell you society go. stays stagnant, but that's not the case. I mean, not at all. who would have ever thought, I, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but who would have ever thought like that shopping malls don't exist anymore? Like literally they're like just going down in a ball of flames because everybody yeah. does everything online. Like who would have ever thought that? Who would have ever thought that work from home is a real thing after the pandemic? Like, and yeah. you look at somebody like Junk King or Molly Maid, well, you have to clean out a room to be able to set up your workspace. So guess what? Yeah. That means Junk King has opportunities. So society and, and the economic environment and all these things are always in flux. At some yeah. level, we have to be able to move with that um, without changing the core of who we are. And I think that's, yeah. you know, Andrea, when you talk about change, there's good change and, and there's bad change. And, and they, of course, jump to the fear of, it's all going to be bad. And as long as you can show them enough wins over a period of time, I, I guarantee you there will be something that a franchise owner does not like in this change. I, I, right. I guarantee sure. you that. But yeah. hopefully there will be many, many more wins that they will see the benefits over the one or two kind of, you know, snarly or not so fun things that they have to deal with becoming part of a bigger organization. Awesome. Well, I have been it's been such a pleasure to have you on. I was so excited to talk with you about this brand because it's so interesting to me. Um, I do hope that when you come to the Midwest, you stop through Chicago, you let us know. Ray and I are both here. We'd love to meet you and your team. And uh, you can certainly stop by the new Pillars of Franchising office here in Roselle as well and uh, give us a live visit if you want to. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to, you know, next year catching up with you and see what a great 2023 Junk King has had now that they are part of the Neighborly family. Yep, I'll get to see it at IFA and at Reunion this year. Yes, you will. So we'll see you. Oh, my goodness. We'll see you both next month in Vegas. Yes, sounds great. Thank you so much awesome. for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much, Lisa. Hey, franchise owners. How is your local marketing do you feel like you could use some help keeping up with your social media posts and comments and reviews? 
Do you wonder if you could be doing more to attract local customers? Are you able to identify new movements to your local area? At Westvine, we help franchisees like you reach more local customers through digital marketing. With daily monitoring, creative content, and ad placement, and customer data intelligence, we'll get your business in front of the people who want your products or services. We also work with franchisors who need an agency to handle the digital marketing for all of their locations. If you're ready to reach more local customers, give us a call at 805-265-5440 or visit us at westvine.com. That's 805-265-5440 or westvine with a Y dot com. Andrea! Here I am. Yes, you are. You are. So I was dying to have this conversation with you because just like we had with Lisa, you actually lived and breathed this entire process not too long ago. And you were actually the founder of your very own company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of parallels. I, I, I paid a lot of attention to what Lisa was saying about fear because it's difficult. And I, we didn't get into it with her, but you know, as, as in her role that, that she's had within the company and then even for the founder, I mean, there's also fear that they have, right. In what the reaction is going to be from the franchisees, because you do care. You, you, they have been there with you throughout that process. Um, And it's very difficult to navigate the right time to ask opinions on various aspects of what those next steps need to be. Um, Mm -hmm. Sharing the roadmap, I think Lisa touched on that in terms of what, you know, the the reason for that transition um, is, and then roadmapping out what you anticipate being the results of that transition. And then, of course, sticking to it. I think that's that's the challenging part. Um, of course, when I went through something like that, that was sort of at the onset of COVID. So there were there yeah. were other reasons for fear that people had, um, and so that that was that was sort of an interesting piggyback to be on as well. But um, but I but I also think you said something that was really um, impactful, and that was that. The great brands are the ones that are making changes. So if they're if they're not making changes and growing, you know they're they're probably not going to make it in the long run. And I think that was um, that was a really important point. Yeah, I you know I will tell you, you know you've obviously been through this as a, from a founder's perspective. Mm-hmm. What did you find to be most challenging? Was it when you went from a a founder into a franchisor or when you went from a franchisor into acquisition by a parent company? I think um, the first challenge was, I mean, when you're an owner operator initially, and then you become a franchisor of your own company, and then you partner with, I partnered with Franworth. So, you know, working with like some incredible people that I learned so much from and I continue to have a great relationship with. Um, you don't know really where you measure up in the, on the totem pole, so to speak, right? Sure. Because when you're, when you're the CEO of your own company, mm-hmm. it's kind of a meaningless term. It's like, a, it's a corporate term, right? But, yeah. and I, I never had a title like that before because it wasn't important to me. It was more just that, you know, at some point, once you get to a certain size, you, you can start 
to need you need to have some certain identities within your roles. And right. so I didn't really know for sure what I knew and what I didn't know and what I was, um, you know, am I am I going to be am I going to need to sort of move myself into a role that is different? Um, and I was surprised by how much I actually did bring to the table, but I also felt like the the value I wanted was to gain knowledge and learn. And I felt like I got like a kind of a perfect balance of that with Fran, mm -hmm. where I had that expertise, but I also was able to learn a lot. And now I, you know, I've done a lot of consulting in the last couple of years and being able to bring sort of some of those systems into other systems has been, sure. you know, wonderful and, and to be able to help a company get themselves set up for franchising, I think um, has been because of that experience I've had. Um, so I think probably that was the first part, but that's almost like your own internal story that you tell yeah. yourself. And I mean, I'll, I'll be honest about it. I, I think sometimes that's a female story. You know, I don't know that guys <laughs> always go into the room with that same feeling. Maybe they do and they hide it better, but I think yeah. we often feel like we're imposters and there's certainly a, a term for mm -hmm. that I understand. Um, but yeah, I had to work through that for sure. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Elizabeth and I talk about that all the time about embracing your identity and your title and making sure that, you know, I think um, it is interesting the difference between men and women because I think that they're, I'm going to use this loosely and half of people are like, oh, I can't believe she said that, but they're bred to, you know, puff out their chest and stand up tall and own the room when they walk in, right? And and we're kind of taught to be a little more demure, right, and graceful and I'm not that way, <laughs> but I do think, you know, it's difficult for women to give themselves the credit and respect that is due. And so I think that's a really good point. Do you feel, you know, because we've talked to the folks over at Franworth and I know a lot of the same people that, that you know over there and they are fabulous. Do you think that it made it better for you to be acquired by a smaller conglomerate than say a company like neighborly who's so huge do you think mm -hmm. that was a, a better situation for you um yes and no i mean i think when Franworth was became involved with with my former company they they were still figuring out exactly the best model for themselves and so so there were some growing pains that came with that but did appreciate that they had some transparency around that too, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's important. Um, I don't think they claimed to have everything figured out, not, you know, and that, that that's okay. Um, right. So would, yeah, that's a very good question. It's hard to know because, right. you know, now I think things are a little bit different coming out of COVID. A lot of the plat platform companies, like, I don't even remember those existing five years ago in the same yeah. way that they do now, right? And the last, I went to Springboard in September, and I just couldn't believe how many of these existed now. Yeah. And so it's almost like this new model has been created. And, and so there's a lot more opportunity for smaller brands to be um, partnered up with a platform yeah. company. So it, it, I think... You know, in the past, smaller smaller brands would not have been attractive to some mm -hmm. of the bigger companies. Now, now they have a lot more opportunity for that. And and in a lot of cases, I think they should take it. Like having worked 
with several different companies who want to get ready for franchising, I mean, the first step is, do you have something to franchise? And that has been a very difficult conversation I've had to have many times with, yeah. with you know, the owners of companies where there is nothing different that they're doing than any of their competition, even though, you know, they're doing a great job at what they're doing in their market, they might be doing something different. There's no scalability across multiple markets. And so mm-hmm. having something that they can identify that no one else is doing or that they can like lay a claim in the, in the like put a stake. I don't know. I always get cliche yeah, wrong, but you know, stake in the sand. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's really important. Um, I actually just started with a brand um, based in Canada uh, that I am like over the moon about because they have created this proprietary technology in the nail industry, in, in nail bars that just uh-huh. doesn't even exist yet. And, you know, they, they've got, uh, we've got how many, 14 locations under construction right now in the next two quarters. Like, it's just, it's just yeah. growing so quickly. But the reason for it is because if you, you know, most women have gotten their nails and you don't go, you don't see something different in that industry very often. And it's right. so fragmented. So when I look at that, I'm like, yeah, this, this is it, right? Like you've got yeah. all of those things dialed. You've got a system, you've got proprietary technology that doesn't yeah. yet exist. It's yeah, there'll be copycats for sure, but sure, there's yeah. an opportunity to own that category. Yep. But so many companies just, they haven't got that yet. So I think that that's the first step. And I think a lot of the platform companies can help a smaller brand mm-hmm. hone in on that. And it might mean conceptually making some changes. Um, yeah, so, let so me maybe ask that's you, better small. Yeah, so let me ask you that very thing. Um, so would you advise a company like that to focus on becoming an attractive brand to a platform company? Or would you advise them to just focus on their own growth, kind of the build it and they will come scenario? Like, what do you tell them to yeah. do? Like, well, because I, I think, think like, yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it comes down partly to economics. I mean, how much funding do you have behind your ability to create a concept that is scalable. Um, and mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes it's not enough to be able to to do that well. And you know, that's the other thing I've I've had to walk through with many potential franchisors is doing a projection model for them or with them and showing them, well, this is actually what it will cost you to properly support a system in the next three years. Yeah. And you know, it this is what it's going to take before you start making money. And a lot of them don't realize that. Um, mm-hmm. And so if they can't sustain that, it's going to be very difficult to, to become a successful franchise or in a successful brand in general. And so in many cases, it could make sense to partner with a platform company. But again, it depends on the nature of the deal. What is the platform company bringing to the table? Is it, is yeah. it capital or is it just service support? You know, and those things have to be really clearly mapped out, I think, before doing that deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know a lot of people ask about these, you know, conglomerates, platform companies. I don't even really know what the exact name is we should be using for them because (laughs) I don't really know what to call them. (laughs) Is platform companies the right name? I mean, that's what I've heard. 
And I, I, I mean, I think there's, there are so many benefits. I mean, just the economies yeah. of scale they can get with a lot of the suppliers is one, you know, major benefit. Oh, huge. You know, I think when franchisees are being asked to adopt new systems, like that's a major pain point that all franchisors go through. You know, mm-hmm. whether something can, you can show them on paper, something can make all this additional margin for them if they're leveraging it properly. But it's very difficult to have them agree to want to adopt a new cost, right? And so I think right. with a platform company, when you get that that enterprise level rate for a lot of different things, it, I think there's there's lots of benefits to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to some extent, it's positive. If you know, back to your original question, if you can do that relatively early, so mm-hmm. that all those new franchisees you're bringing on board, they start with that fresh new well set up system with all of sure. the pieces in place that you know and you've had Matt Slobel on before from Woven mm-hmm. like software um, operational management software. I mean when I saw that I have done work with him too. I mean I couldn't believe it. I'm like this is what a franchisor needs to yeah. actually operate properly. Even if you don't yeah. have it, just look at it and plug in all the things and then you will know you will have everything you need. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's one of the huge values of a platform company as well. So when I talk to people and I try to help them uh, invest in their ideal, their life-changing, their absolute favorite franchise, um, you know, we do talk a lot about what you and Mary have talked about, about the small family founder run, right? That's when Mm -hmm. I joined Molly Mae, we were still founder run. Well, founder slash service brands, like three brands, right? And it's evolved. And so when I talk to people about that, we talk about um, kind of their personalities, their level of involvement, their um, their feelings about change, so on and so forth. So I'm curious um, for you, if you were someone brand new coming into franchising, what kind of a brand do you think you'd be most attracted to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think for me, and 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 if I were looking personally for something for me, mm-hmm. I, I will say that I, I think you're very um, naive to think that a completely hands-off concept exists. Um, yeah. I think if you're getting into franchising because you want it to be an investment that sits on its own and you just have passive income, I don't, I think you're better to work to play the market. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's a better use of your capital. I think franchising, you know, back to what Mary or Mary, Lisa said is about getting in business because you have a passion for business, but you don't want to do it completely alone. And I think, I don't yeah. think you can lose sight of that. I think you have to have a passion for wanting to have your own business. Um, it's interesting. I've spent most of my career in companies, either my own or otherwise, that are very real time, like customer facing mm-hmm. things happen in the moment. And then I've also spent time in things on in short term where things are not real time. So the benefit to the end user is down the road. I don't like that as much. I've realized, like, I actually really like to see how someone responds to an experience yeah, the immediate. that gets created. Right. Yeah. Whether that be in, you know, picking up their junk or having a manicure done and getting their nails perfect or a facial or even 
on the supplier side, you know, there can be lots of ways that that can come to life. I like seeing something real and tangible that someone enjoys that was created. Um, that's, that's a good point. Important. Yeah. So I can't say whether it's industry specific because I don't think it is. I think I, I'm industry agnostic in that way. I yeah. just want to have some Immediate. connection to that end user. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about, um, I don't even know if the profiles we do talk about immediate feedback. I mean, that's really what it is, right? It's the, the, the immediate, okay, this is what, I, this is why I'm doing it. You know, every day at the end of the day, you get, you've got this sense of satisfaction that, you know, this may not have gone well, but I had 10 happy customers. So we're making progress, right? Well, maybe, maybe it's that simple. I mean, if you're with Molly Maid, you see the reaction people have coming home to a cleaning house, right? Yeah. We're coming home and, you know, maybe they've gone through a traumatic event and they've brought in Junk King to come and remove yeah. that memory and deal with that. I think just making people happy or making it yep. something easier for them if you're on the supplier side. So I think it's, it's Maybe it's just that simple. We we get into something that you see someone, you leave someone better than you met them. That's that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I think that is a great way to put it. Yeah, and you know, I think that goes back to the values and um, you know, all over again, the culture and the kind of business that you build. Well, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, it's, I'm a, so glad that you are back and that you uh, said lovely holidays and time with your family and you know we love having you here on the show because you have such an interesting perspective that a lot of us don't have and uh, we got a lot of positive feedback I met some emerging brands last month at the franchise hot seat that actually were at Springboard and it's, oh, great. they were so excited they said you know of all the places we've done of all the things we've done Springboard really helped get them focused. Mm-hmm. And then they came to Hot Seat and got a little more, and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's what we were talking about at um, Springboard. So I think it's great that you are able to contribute on that level, certainly the level to, uh, to, in the show here, and then to so many other great franchise systems out there that just need a little extra help, a little fresh set of eyes and things of that nature. So thank you very much. Um, and as always, we can't wait to see you again, hopefully next week or the week after that, that you can be back on. Thank you. And now I think Fred's going to make us pay some bills. As usual, thank you for joining Pillars of Franchising. We appreciate every single one of you. Um, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors, the Titus Center for Franchising at Palm Beach Atlantic University. You can find them on the college's website. Also, Franchise Show 247, which can be found at FranchiseShow247.com. And we couldn't do it without our sponsors, and we appreciate their support. Don't forget, we love to have call-in guests. Our number to call in is 323-580-5755. That is 323-580-5755. If you have questions for our guests or for any of our million-dollar mentors, we welcome you to call in at any time on the show. We will do our very best to answer your calls. Stay tuned. More coming up. ...on what you're buying. Mm So what you're saying is, is if they are vague and evasive on their numbers, then that's a, right. So let's assume they are vague and evasive. Um, Ray, would we run away then or would we push further? 
Well, one, one of the things that is mentioned in many seminars I've attended is, uh, is that if you're intending to uh, sell your franchise uh, and you are taking things out of the franchise that would decrease the profit, you might want to uh, take, you know, start to clean them up, clean those things up a little bit. You know, personal items that should be personal that are being subtracted from the business need to be put back into the business. So uh, that would, I would not necessarily consider that cooking the books uh, is the term I used on the last show, but uh, it's hardly normal things. Uh, cooking the books to me, the definition would be inflating the profit to, uh, to the point where it, it may even become obvious. So, uh, I guess the uh, question to Darlene is, you know, uh, when, when, you know, how do we see that? How do we see that things are becoming, you know, uh, more uh, less uh, obvious that you know things are rather inflated? Maybe looking at previous years, I mean, one of the things that you could, uh, you know, instead of asking for maybe three years back, ask for five years back. What do you think, Darlene? I would agree. The more history you can get, it, it will show whether or not the, the numbers have changed dramatically. If all of a sudden there's a huge increase in revenue in the, the, the you know, current year or maybe the last year of the return that, that you have, you can try and start looking at and ask questions as to, as to what they did differently to increase the revenue that much. Did they add new revenue streams? Um, does it make sense at that point? Mm-hmm. As well as you know, what type of expenses are they trying to, to now pull out that aren't consistent with the tax return? I mean, there are certain business expenses that are, are normal and, and ordinary, such as, you know, you, your, your vehicle being on the books, um, you know, certain meals and entertainment for, for, you know, your employees or your customers or potential customers. There are certain expenses out there that are normal. But what you're looking for is things that they're trying to add back in that would sound out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Again, are there, you know, expenses that, let's say, for a restaurant, um, what type of expenses are they wanting to add back in? If they're trying to add back in food costs because they're saying these weren't necessarily sold to customers, then you might want to start looking a little deeper as to whether or not all the numbers are consistent with what would be considered a normal mm-hmm. deduction on a tax return. So what you're saying is if all of a sudden I saw an expense for, let's say, a 90-foot um, RB there, that should, <laughs> I knew that would get right. That, would, that should be a trigger and say, hmm. <laughs> if, if, there, if someone would be trying, in, and again, you know, maybe, again, maybe it, it's an option. Um, <laughs> Depending upon what type of, you know, is it a roaming uh, accounting firm? Is it a roaming cleaning company? Is it, you know, that might be the, the vehicle of somewhat choice, but, <laughs> but you do want to make make sure that it makes sense as to what they're trying to have you add back in or subtract out in that case. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is is the so I remember in the accounting classes I took, it's always you know. Uh, debits minus credits so on and so forth but the expenses is what i really have to look at to see on a year-over-year basis 
if expenses have peaked when they were at a peak or, or when they dropped or something like that, especially within if they're inflating the value, if they're cooking the book, books to inflate the value, then the expenses are probably going to uh, really go up or go down the year that they're trying to sell. Right. And, and there can be good reasons why that could happen. It could be a timing difference. It could be, you know, again, um, were there extraordinary expenses in a certain year? But you're looking for the consistency over the years because that's going to help you determine what the actual percentage is and what your profits can be expected. Okay. So that all makes sense to me. So let's assume I've gotten to this point and I said, okay, I, I, I think there's something oddball, or maybe I don't think there's something oddball. When do I bring a professional in? I think that you really want to bring a professional in, even if it does look like everything is good. Again, there are certain things that a professional can maybe see that isn't on that front page of the tax return of, yes, my expenses look correct each year, my revenue looks like it's, you know, gone in the right direction by a reasonable amount. Um, but there's other things that a professional can look at as, as in the balance sheet to see that, that each year ties out um, things like the retained earnings, which show the profits and losses of the, of the company. It does each year tie out from one tax return to the other? That can be an indicator right there whether or not something has been changed if it's not consistent year to year with the different tax returns. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then uh, my next question runs is, okay, so um, I'm going to take a look at it to see if it's worth going after, and I've ascertained that it is. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they're cooking the books or not, but then it's time to bring the professional in to take a look to give me that final answer. So the two questions I have is, is there any, I'm gonna, it, these are both budgetary questions. One is time. Um, what amount of time should I budget for a professional to uh, go through the books and give me back a report is I guess what I'm saying. And that's going to depend on what kind of reports you have available. Is it someone that only has a tax return for a couple of years? Is it someone who has monthly financial statements that they can go through and look at? Um, I think the, the most important thing is, is to, to find someone that, that, you know, has the time to look at it, is willing to, to go through it with you, give them that information ahead of time, and, and let them kind of form a list of things that they like about the company and things that, that they have questions about for you then to take back to, to the purchase person you're looking at buying from. Uh, excellent. So then, as I said, the other question is budgetary. What is this going to cost the erstwhile buyer? There's, there's a lot of different ranges depending upon what type of company that you're going to take it to. Um, again, is this a company that is going to, that you're going to look to engage in a, on, on a monthly basis to help you with your payroll, your, your, your accounting, your tax returns? You know, they might be willing to do it without a charge or a fairly minimal charge, you know, $500,000, which again may sound like a lot, but you've got a big investment you're making here. The best money you can spend is the money you spend ahead of time to make sure that you're aware of what you're buying 
and know and hopefully can see if there's any anything that is going to be inconsistent that you need to change right away if you do still plan to go ahead and buy it. Excellent. Okay, Ray, I think I'm smarter now. <laughs> I'll let you have the last questions and comments here. So, yeah, I, I think the best advice that we can give anybody looking for a franchise uh, I think even a new franchise doesn't have to be uh, one that's already in, in business. Uh, as an example, uh, I really didn't know any good attorneys when I opened my franchise, but I have a friend of a friend of a friend who knew an accountant who I said, hey, can you look over the FDB? <laughs> and he did. And he said, yeah, it looks great. Well, what else is he going to say? He's an accountant. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> But, oh, Ray, get the shot in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, it worked out good. Uh, it, was, it happened to be a good company. Uh, Molly Main has uh, uh, been a fantastic company to uh, uh, be the owner of, and uh, uh, I, I think it's worked out great. So I, I guess the uh, the answer to the question, should you hire experts, uh, to, to, to look at uh, the books and, uh, you know, all the other legal things that might uh, be standing out there uh, definitely would be yes. And uh, I think someone like Darlene uh, would be, uh, you know, be able to give you excellent advice. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> Darlene, since you didn't ask the question, I will now ask the last question. I will thank you for being on a Pillar Pillar. But how do people get a hold of you? This was always the famous Ray's last question. And yes. it's amazing how many I was times. getting to it. I was getting to it, Chris. <laughs> you know, even my patient. <laughs> so how do people get a hold of you, ma'am? Well, first of all, they can always contact Ray. <laughs> He's got all of my right. information. That's right. <laughs> Our website is Tax Solutions with two X's, T-A-X-X-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot com. That's another way to get a hold of us. Um, we're a firm who loves talking to our customers, our, our clients. You know, one of the, the, the key reasons that people get frustrated with the people they use is lack of follow-through, lack of return phone call. Um, we love talking to our clients. We would rather talk to our clients ahead of time, which is why we have a monthly service for our customers, as opposed to bring me your stuff from last year, around tax time, I'll put it on extension and we'll hope to get it done before the extension is up. Because to me, there's not a lot of value in that. Um, as far as, as current data, current help, um, and a lot of times they charge you if you're going to ask other questions. We like to know our clients month in and month out. That way, if Ray could call them and says, hey, I'm thinking about this crazy idea I have. <laughs> we can we can try and help them with that is a great plan or well, you know, let's kind of talk about it. Right, because we right, know right. we know his business. We know him. We know his situation. So so yeah, absolutely. And when you called Arlene just say Ray sent me. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again for being our guest guinea pig on Pillars Pillar with Ray. Um, it's been really useful information for those of us looking to buy an existing franchise, which normally we cater to those who want to buy a new one. But like I said, me, myself, I would never want to buy a new one. Too much hard work. 
Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> Ray and a crazy question. Who would have ever thunk it? We would like to thank you for joining us on the show today, and thank you to our guest, Lisa Mary of Junk King. As always, we appreciate Pillars of Franchising contributors, Ray Pillar, Andrew Mundy of RDCP Consulting, as well as our producers, Fred McMurray and Elizabeth and Shell Messi. And together, we are your resource for franchising success. And don't forget, this has been another Pillars of Franchising episode, and the dream starts here. Have a great week. Build it up, 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 build it up